tomorrow will be the, the 4th of July and a, a fun time for our country, a time to uh, celebrate fireworks, uh, meals together um, as we give attention to the fact that we live in a free country. And I want to kind of build off that today and talk about this idea of being free indeed, how freedom is expressed in the Christian life. I appreciate the video clip that Nathaniel found. Uh, he often does that, finds things that connects to our lessons that didn't even know about uh, that existed, but that video captured exactly what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we have to always focus on our identity as believers, because in this culture and even in this country where God in many places is respected and honored, um, we can simply be covered over by culture, and we can see our greatest identity either as Americans or an allegiance with a political party or an ethnicity or a gender, because our our society is being broken into different groups. But as believers, even though we might share in all those other things, which is perfectly fine, our greatest identity is what we have in Jesus Christ. So I want to focus on that this morning and look at that, especially through the lens of being free, because we celebrate our freedom tomorrow. The signing of the Declaration of Independence, where we broke free from the British, established a new country, and, and this freedom is our greatest treasure in this country. We enjoy a freedom of the press, the freedom to petition our government and protest. We enjoy the right to assemble, uh, which we're enjoying right now, free of persecution or being forced to follow a, a particular religion. And the list goes on as far as the freedoms that we enjoy here that other countries do not enjoy. But as great as these freedoms are, they're still not as great as the freedom given to us in Jesus Christ. So we have to understand not only the greatest or the great nature of that freedom, but also the great responsibility of that freedom. Because being free in Christ doesn't mean free to do whatever we want or free to just sin willfully despite being forgiven. Because we're just covered. That's not the idea at all of freedom. So we're going to explore this morning the idea of being free in Christ. Uh, but first we have to understand and appreciate what it means to be captive. You might remember a time growing up in your life where maybe you had an older brother or sister or friend that locked you into some confined space and would not let you out. And... That can be terrifying, um, even if you're not claustrophobic. Just the idea of being confined and not able to do anything about it unless someone lets you out. Um, we could think of times maybe as we're kids where someone did that to us and we never forget that feeling. There's some that will not fly because the idea of getting on an airplane, uh, airplane in a confined space. John Madden, the famous sports broadcaster, did not fly because he didn't like being confined with no sense of being able to get out if he needed to. And sometimes the reality of being confined is horrifically brought to our minds. This last week, as it was discovered in Texas, over 50 to 60 bodies stuffed into a truck trailer as they were trying to desperately escape their country, people that were locked in there by the people that were supposed to bring them safe passage and imagine the moments before some of the people died knowing they could not get out. And the fear 
uh, that must have been in their minds the moments before they died. So another picture this weekend of two men that were stuffed inside a, a toolbox in the back of a truck being smuggled across the border and, and how that lid was shut and it was locked and they were stuck in there and just the sheer terror of that, let alone what would happen later on. Uh, being captive is terrifying. And understand that we lived a captive life before Jesus Christ is essential. So I want to spend the first few moments talking about the fact that Christ has set us free from our captivity, which was terrifying because we had no way out. I want to kind of build a case for what it means to be free in Christ by looking through some text where we're spoken of as being free, where that Christ came to liberate a people. And we'll center on this idea of what we've been made free from in just a moment. But I want to first see that Jesus proclaimed freedom. The first text we'll look at is Luke chapter 4. We'll go from Luke chapter 4, then we'll look to John, then Galatians, then end in Romans 7. But look at the theme of freedom. This first text in Luke 4 um, is where Jesus publicly went up into the synagogue in Nazareth. This was after his temptation by the devil in the wilderness. This is the very beginning of his public ministry. And notice the first thing he wants to tell people as he begins teaching about himself and what he came to do. Verse 14 beginning, Luke 4, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Verse 15, he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood to read. Verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to, by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Here it's a, an announcement or a proclamation being made by Jesus. He says the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's citing an Old Testament text that previewed this coming day. And he talks about what he is a bringing as the anointed one, good news to the poor, sight to the blind. But then he also says he's coming to proclaim freedom to prisoners. And then he reiterates that very thought where he says he's to set the oppressed free. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we don't read about Jesus going to any place of incarceration where he let out people that were essentially in jail or in prison. We do read about him setting um, people that were blind, free from that affliction. Uh, he brought good things to the poor. But he never literally took someone out of jail and freed them. So he must be alluding to something different 
and perhaps a greater form of impression. Again, he says, he's come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. I believe here he's talking about people that are imprisoned by sin that don't even know they're prisoners, which is the worst form of imprisonment at all. You don't even know you're imprisoned. Look how this is brought out in John chapter 8. Go forward one book to John chapter 8. This is a text that was at the heart of the video Nathaniel presented. Again, this idea of freedom. And here Jesus will be speaking to some who didn't know they were imprisoned or captive in any sense. And look how he challenges them. John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you, what? Free. Verse 33, They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Verse 34, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me. Because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence. And you are doing what you have heard from your Father. At the very end here when he says, you're doing what you've heard from your Father, later on he will say, your Father the devil. <laughs> uh, he's saying, that's who you're following. But here he's preaching to the Jewish people who he first came to preach to. And he says, if you hold to my teaching... You will be set free. You shall know the truth, verse 32, and the truth shall set you free. Here he's not talking so much about a particular scripture or a verse or a teaching, but the truth ultimately is himself. Remember what he says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the ultimate source of truth. He tells the truth, and he is the truth. And he says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But the response of the people that Jesus came to save is what? We've never been slaves to anyone. Even though throughout their history, they'd been a captive people many times. Assyrian captivity, Babylonian captivity, just you name it. They had been captive, but they didn't really see themselves as being captive. Well, Jesus clarifies verse 34. Here's what I'm talking about. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's the type of captivity that is our problem. But then he says, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So here Jesus is proclaiming true freedom, even to people that don't think they're captive. So there's some higher level of freedom than just being in jail or being a political prisoner or being captive by another nation, there's another type of freedom that Jesus is proclaiming. Go forward now in your New Testaments to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. We know in these intervening chapters, Jesus gives his life 
for sin as a sacrifice and Scripture affirms that truth over and over and over again in different places. And here the Apostle Paul, who was a hand-picked follower of Jesus, someone that Jesus personally selected to carry on his mission, picks up this idea of freedom that Jesus had proclaimed and that he had secured through his sacrifice. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. Notice especially verse 1. Paul says to the Galatian Christians, it is for freedom that Christ has set us, what? Free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Let's just pause here for a moment. I want to preview what he's going to talk about next. One of the challenges of the Jewish people, just like we saw a challenge that Jesus encountered in Luke 4, is that they did not want to give up their history. And they did not want to give up the institutions and the identifying marks that had simply made them feel secure as one of God's children. And for Jewish males, the clearest identifying mark was circumcision. It was something that had been given by God to Abraham and his descendants, picked up by the Jewish people. And it was to define them as God's people. But not forever is a defining mark. And in Christ, uh, Paul will later say circumcision means nothing. It's a voluntary decision by males or by the parents. Uh, but they were holding on to it as if this was really what makes us God's people, circumcision. And some were saying, no, you don't really have to depend upon Christ. Just depend upon this identifying mark that you have as a Jewish male, and that's all you really need. And they thought they were made free from, by that instead of Jesus. Now let's go on to verse 2 and things will make sense. He says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ you have fallen from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let's just kind of go back through here just hitting some key points. First of all, he said it's for freedom that Christ sets you free. Christ is the great emancipator. But what Paul is dealing with here, some people had been made free, but they're trying to go back into jail. They're trying to go back behind bars by trying to go back under the Jewish law and some of its prescriptions for people, namely for men, circumcision. He's not saying, hey, don't be circumcised at all, but if someone's trying to tell you hey, you have to be circumcised to be saved or you have to have this Jewish mark, especially to non-Jewish people, he says, don't do that. He says, it doesn't matter anymore whether you're circumcised or not. That's not how God defines who belongs to Him. It's defined only through Jesus Christ. And he says, in fact, if you try going back to the old Jewish law and taking on these different things, you're obligated to do what with the law? Keep what? All of it. You have to obey it all. And what Paul is alluding here to is two ways of being right with God. Either one, you put yourself under a law system, which means 
You've got to keep all the laws perfectly. And you're right with God based on perfection. The reality is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But some still try. Well, maybe I can just keep them all perfectly. Paul says, well, if you try that, you're obligated to keep all of it. Not one Jewish person could say they're keeping it all perfectly. But Jesus says, or you can depend upon Christ. Or upon grace, which is God's forgiveness of where we failed to keep all of God's laws. And that's why he says in verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. What we as Christians have done is said, we're not going to try to be right with God based on how well we're doing with God's laws. Because once you failed one, you, you're now guilty. Just like if you're driving home on 280 and you get caught going 80 miles an hour by the highway patrol that sits there and I see all the spots as I come to church every morning. You get pulled over by the highway patrol for going 80 and 65. You cannot say, well, hey, for years I've been driving 65 on the, on the 280. For, and I promise in the future I'm going to drive 65 on the 280. All that officer is concerned about is what he caught you doing right then because you violated the law. You're now guilty. To try to be right with God based on how well we're keeping those laws is impossible. It's a moot issue because no one's done it. But they were trying to do it here. But Paul says, you've been set free from that system. You've been set free from having to keep everything perfectly. Christ came to make up the difference. God's standard is perfect perfection. We failed. We're down here. But Jesus came to bridge the gap. And by forgiveness, he forgives us of where we failed and brings us up to this point where God can accept us because we've been made free from sin through Jesus. That's our freedom in Christ. So he's saying, don't go back to a system of trying to keep God's laws perfectly because you're failing in doing so. So Paul affirmed true freedom is found in Christ alone. And remember what we are set free from. Look at Romans 7 now. Go back a little bit, back to the book of Romans. And remember, we've been talking about this idea of trying to be right with God based on perfection or based on keeping the laws well enough. Well, here's the problem, Romans 7, verse 21. And this is why Jesus becomes so important. Here's the reality of our life with sin, verse 21. Paul says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me what? A prisoner of the law of sin at work in me within me. Let's just pause here. We agree with everything God says we ought to be doing, but what's the problem in our personal life? We're falling short of it, either by sinful actions, maybe sinful thoughts, jealousy, envy, greed, uh, things we said that we shouldn't have said. The list goes on. The problem is our life reflects something different than what we agree with. Just if I get pulled over by the highway patrol, uh, I might agree that, yes, the law is 65 and everyone should be following it on the freeway. 
But the reality is, I got pulled over for 80. Because I thought I had to get to church on time. There's twice in my life I've got a ticket going to church. <laughs> Long time ago, but one of them was coming here. Years ago when I spoke here in the late 1980s, I was rushing with my family up and got pulled over. That's why this illustration is so powerful. <laughs> on my way to church, I had to get there on time. And even though the justification might have seen right, the highway patrol still gave me the ticket. So, verse 23, I see another law at work <laughs> in me, warring against the law of my mind. I agree in the speed limit, I just wasn't doing it. And it made me a prisoner of the law of sin. I committed the violation. Something's got to be done about the violation. I've got to pay for it myself. The problem is with sin, we can't pay for it. I can pay a speeding ticket. I can't pay for sin. Paul says in verse 24, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Then verse 25, here's the answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature lauded to sin and death. So Christ came to deliver him. Now verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you what? Free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful humanity, to be a sin offering. Just pause here. Here God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He paid our ticket, or all our tickets, for when we committed sin. We've been set free. And so He condemned sin in human flesh, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Just pause here. Let me just read that again. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us. Remember the two ways of being right with God? You either keep God's laws, what? To be right. Perfectly. You've got to do everything right. Where God just has to let you into heaven because you did everything right. Well, who can say they've done that? No one. Except Jesus. But the requirement is still there. Who bridges the gap for us? It's Jesus. So he condemned sin in human flesh, verse 4 again, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Here we're set free from the law of sin and death. And the law of sin and death is, when you've committed sin, you're now guilty. And you continue to be guilty unless someone frees you of that sin, acquits you of that sin. And that's where Jesus steps in. He makes us free by forgiving us of these failures to keep God's law perfectly, and therefore we continually, as John says, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, are continually cleansed of our sin and considered righteous and accepted by God by virtue of forgiveness instead of how well we're keeping God's law. That's the great emancipation. That's the great liberation. 
people that had no hope of being free are made free through the action of someone else, that is Jesus Christ. That is the freedom we always celebrate, and especially on the first day of the week. We're celebrating freedom from the burden of sin and death. Here's two applications before we go on to our second thought. First, we are set free from having to live perfectly to be accepted by God. We are set free from having to live perfectly to be accepted by God. We know we're not perfect. In fact, we say that all the time, don't we? I'm not perfect. That's one thing at least we do a pretty good job admitting. <laughs> we're not perfect. Um, but to take it more seriously in God's eyes, if you're going to be right with Him based on how well you're doing, you've got to do everything right. No sin at any time because God is holy. He's free from sin. He cannot accept sinful people in His presence. Well, the only way to not have sin is either to be living perfectly or to be forgiven. And we've been set free from that hopeless burden of trying to live perfectly to be right with God. What a burden knowing that we're all doomed. Going back to our early teens when we started committing moral wrong. See, we've been set free from that. And we are set free from the overwhelming burden of our sins and failures. Not only are we free from a standard that we could not meet because of our sin. We're free from worrying all our lives, will these sins catch up with me one day in the judgment? Sins of our early years that we wish we had never committed aren't embarrassed about. Things that we said or thought that no one knows about. As we look back in the years of our lives, even to recent times, have done things that there's no excuse for doing. We knew better. It's like driving. We know better than to speed or to run a stop sign. We know better, but we do it anyway at times. We wonder, will this catch up with us on the judgment day? John says in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he's talking about those who are already Christians, who have been baptized, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have ongoing, continual cleansing from sin based on what Jesus did. So the answer is no, we don't have to worry about those sins catching up with us. We don't have to worry about, well, will this really be such a big thing that God cannot forgive it? Part of our freedom is knowing that we have freedom every day. That once these sins are forgiven, they are forgotten by God. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, when the writer speaks about what God promised He would do through the Savior, He would remember their sins no more. Previewed in Jeremiah 31, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Our sins are taken out of the mind of God and never will come back to haunt us. There is no greater gift. Christ has set us free. Well, what does that mean once you're free? In our remaining moments this morning, I want to talk about what true freedom really means. True freedom brings great responsibility. 
Do we celebrate our freedom? Yes. Do we proclaim it? Yes. We do every Lord's Day. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We, we revel in it. We rejoice in song. We thank God in prayer for our freedom. Because it's the greatest of all freedoms. It's beyond our American freedom. But we have to also see that as we come into this free state, there's great responsibility. As people are set free from prison after doing their time, they know when they're set free, number one, they don't want to do anything that ever puts them back into prison. Society knows that. That's why there's pro, uh, programs to help people that have been incarcerated to get their life back going again because a healthy start keeps someone from going back into the lifestyle that got them incarcerated to start with. So you want people working. You want people feeling good about their life and free from addictions and things like that because they have to have a healthy beginning now that they're set free because there's a responsibility to live right. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. Look at Romans 8 now, verse 5. Here's where we see there's a responsibility. That now that we're free, our life has to look like a free life. Verse 5, Romans 8. Paul says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature or that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. That's the Spirit of God. The mind controlled by the sinful nature is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Let's just pause here for a moment. He says, verse 8, Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. What the Apostle Paul is talking about here is the old mindset. The sinful nature is not, you couldn't help but sin. The sinful nature instead in Scripture is that desire to sin where you just don't even try and you just give in to sin every time the temptation appears. He says here, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Just like someone that gets freed from prison. If they just go back out in the first 15 minutes and start breaking into buildings, robbing people uh, and, and stealing. and Paul's saying, hey, that cannot please God. You're going back to the same thing that you've been freed from. So he's eliminating this idea that, well, you just go back to the old lifestyle once you've been forgiven. Because, well, now you're forgiven. You can just do what you want and you'll get forgiveness. Paul's saying no. Another place he said, we shall not sin, the grace shall abound. That's not the mindset. He says, here's what it should be, verse 9. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. 
Verse 11, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Verse 12 now. Notice what he says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Here he's talking to people who've already been emancipated, made free. He says, number one, you can't keep living according to the sinful nature. That means you just can't give in to anything you want to do. He says in verse 12 here, we have an obligation as free people, an obligation to live according to the Spirit. He says that over and over and again. What does he mean by that? Live according to the Spirit. Well, here he's talking about the Spirit of God that someone receives upon baptism. Scripture teaches that the Spirit of God comes into our life and essentially takes residency. We can't see it. We don't feel it. God just says the Spirit of God lives within you. My Spirit lives within you. The Spirit works through the Word of God. As we come in contact with God's teaching, it tells us about what's wrong and what's right. And as believers who've been made free, we're constantly aligning ourselves with what is right and what is good, but we're still at times committing sin. In fact, John says, if you say that you have no sin, and he's talking to believers that have been baptized, you make God out to be a liar. Sin's still a problem. Sin is still a problem, but Christ is doing something about it. If we confess those sins, we repent, we get right back on the road and start doing the right thing. If I get pulled over for getting a, a speeding ticket, I don't just go put my car in the garage and say, I'm never driving again. I get back on the road, and what do you do, especially after you leave the highway patrolman? You're driving 65. And you're making every effort to do what you ought to do. And that's exactly what the Christian life looks like. That's living according to the Spirit. You're now trying to do what's right. Will you fail again, likely in the future? Yes. But you're not trying to fail. You're not failing because, hey, you don't care anymore. We will fall prey to Satan's temptations, but yet Christ covers us through his sin as we confess those sins. But he says here, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That means you're living under this obligation to live a responsible, free life. Just as anyone who's been in prison for car jacking or kidnapping or drug abuse or even murder, if they are set free, they have an obligation not to go back to those sins or even the lifestyle. So a lot of people have been made free. They don't want to go back to their old friends anymore. They don't want to go back to the old neighborhood. They don't want to be around the people that they were running with. They start a brand new life. Because they understand the obligation of freedom. Some don't. Some within 15 minutes go right back to the old neighborhood. And that's what Paul's saying. Don't go back to the sinful nature. Don't go back to the old guys. And don't go back to that lifestyle. You're now free. Some understand freedom. Some don't. So we are not free to do whatever we want in Christ. 
just because we're forgiven. But instead, we are free to live in loving responsibility. We are free to live in loving responsibility. Well, what, what does that mean? Let's go back to the book of Galatians again. Go forward three books to Galatians. This is a great capturing of what the Christian life is to all be about. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're just going to a place of trying not to do wrong. We wouldn't tell that to someone that just got out of San Quentin after 20 years of imprisonment for armed robbery. We wouldn't say, well, just go live in your house and stay there and try not to commit armed robbery again. What does a newly released prisoner need to do? Well, if the old life was armed robbery, the first thing that released prisoner needs to do is get a job. <laughs> Acquire things legally and responsibly, not through sinful ways. Paul said in Ephesians 4, Let him who stole steal no more, but let him instead labor with his hands that he might give to those in need. The key to the Christian life is doing the opposite of what we were doing before ever coming to Christ. Well, what does that look like? Galatians 5, verse 13 beginning. Galatians 5. Here Paul talks about the new life of a free person. Verse 13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be what? Free. There's that word again. Called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Pause here. He said, he said, don't go back to armed robbery if you used to steal. Don't go back to that. That's a sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Verse 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, here's the clarifying. Here, someone doesn't know what it means to live the new life. Here it comes. Verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's pause here. He just gave a list that runs a full gambit of things that are very obvious sins to things that we sometimes get used to, like jealousy. <laughs> He's saying here, all this has got to go. You've got to clean house as a Christian. And we're constantly cleaning house. 
getting rid of all the things that we struggle with, working on them. And he lists, here's a good starting point. <laughs> Work on these things for sure. And there's other lists like this in Scripture. But he doesn't just say get the house clean and sit there with no furniture and just try to hope you don't sin again. You do the opposite. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Here he says, the opposite of this following the sinful nature is taking on what's called the fruit of the Spirit. As God's Holy Spirit lives within us, our life starts to look very different. Not holier than thou. God doesn't look for holier than thou people and doesn't want them. Not people living perfectly, because we still fail, even shortly after baptism. But what God is looking for is people that are determined to take on a whole other set of qualities in their life. Just imagine, again, someone who is released from prison for armed robbery. They get out of Sam Quentin. They go about a job training program where they're going to learn a skill, a vocation, a computer skills perhaps, and they learn and they get a job that takes care of all their own needs. But they're so skilled at it because they give themselves to it. They have extra money, and now they're giving to other people, people that are in need, whether it be family members or friends, or people they don't even know. They're doing the very opposite of what they used to do. What they used to do. They used to steal from people to get what they want. Now they're working, taking care of themselves, and they have enough to give to others. The Christian life is living the opposite of what Satan wants us to do. That is, rebel against God. So when someone takes on kindness, goodness, learning to be patient, whether you be patient as you drive, patient with family members. And patient means long-suffering, not enabling, but long-suffering. Uh, Self-control, goodness. Where people want to be around you, they feel like you're a blessing because you're trying to help. When that blessing might be being a good listener, it might be being generous, it might be giving a hand, whatever it is. You're doing the opposite from selfishness. Now it's selflessness. The Spirit of God is living within you, Paul is saying here. And you're living in step with the Spirit. And that's the ultimate goal of freedom in Christ. Our goal is not to just keep sin out. That's, that's a priority, absolutely. But the ultimate goal is to bring in the opposite. And the more the opposite comes in, the less the old ways come back. A person that's lived their life stealing, once they've learned to work for themselves and to make their own money and to feel a sense of responsibility and, and self-worth instead of guilt. And they're making their own money. Maybe they start their own business, even though they're an ex-convict, and they're making their own money. They're being generous. 
you can't get those kind of people back into the old life. Because the joy they have for being responsible and giving to others now will just overwhelm that desire to steal from other people. There's a joy that comes from doing what's right. There's a joy in this freedom of Christ where we're going the right direction, not perfectly all the time. We'll make mistakes, we'll sin, we'll stumble, but we will not go back to the old lifestyle ever again because we've been made free. And that's what Paul is calling us to. Two final applications and we're finished. People who respect their freedom live responsibly. The true understanding of being free in Christ is living responsibly. Not having a hidden double life. Not trying to hide sin. Not trying to pretend you're something you're not. But living, correcting whatever you know you need to correct working hard at things that are your trouble areas, that's living responsibly. And our freedom calls us to live with the highest regard for God and for others. Our highest allegiance is to our Creator, and we have this great responsibility towards treating others right. That's what freedom in Christ means. So as we gather and we assemble like we have today and we take the Lord's Supper, it's a renewal of our vows <laughs> to get out of the sinning business, to get out of the old sinful nature lifestyle and always stay going forward, learning to be kind and gentle, treating others right, even those who are difficult, and it's hard. But our responsibility is to continue on that path till our journey ends on this earth. Forgiveness calls us to constantly work on eliminating sin and doing just the opposite. We go from sinfulness and selfishness to selflessness where we're working on being the kind of person that God always envisioned us being and sent His Son to die for. It's a lifelong pursuit. It goes with us to the grave. Satan never stops working on us and we never stop working at pushing him back and becoming the kind of person that God envisioned us being. So today as we, on the first day of the week, celebrate our greatest freedom, as other freedoms are talked about, let us appreciate those. And I appreciate this great country. But our greatest freedom is what we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. Jesus said in John 8, 36, who the Son sets free is free indeed. What a status we've been given. What a status we've been given. We're going to sing a song in just a moment to call us to renewal, to call us to continually being focused on this type of life that we've been called to because the draw is always there to go back or to compromise or to align ourselves with our culture rather than Christ. So we always have to work on this. And that's why all of us gather here today. It's so important that we chose to be here because we're constantly having to work on this and being encouraged by each other. May God bless us as we give our lives to Him. Confess every sin you know about. Work on every sin you struggle with. Never give up on anything. And keep pursuing God because He never stopped pursuing you and me. He chased after us with his son. 
let us chase after now the things that are important to him.